0: I think I'm organised. Let's pray as we come to have a look at God's Word this morning. Father God, we thank you so much that we're able to be here together. Uh, we thank you that we can uh, be family together. Thank you that we can do these things that welcome people into to membership. We thank you for what you're doing in and through our church. Uh, God, we pray as we stop now and we listen to your Word. May you give us open ears and hearts to what you have to say to us this morning. Uh, We thank you that at this time of the year, we can especially reflect on the life of Jesus, his journey towards the cross, his journey towards resurrection and new life. Uh, And may we, as we look again at the the life of Jesus, his journey this morning, uh, may you continue to form us into the likeness of Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I must also say, it is lovely to see uh, Nate and Potty down here in their crows gear uh, this morning, uh, celebrating a good win last night. I actually don't get to say this very often, but I'm a St Kilda supporter, uh, and currently we're 3-0 and and on top of the ladder. Uh, This is not going to last forever, so I just need to say that publicly, that I'm a very happy man this morning. Um, But I'm not here to talk about St Kilda as much as I would love to, but I want to take you back to New Year's Eve 1990. Some of you weren't even thought of then. Uh, I was a 14-year-old a kid living in Darwin at the time, but we happened to be down here in Adelaide because our extended family was here for Christmas. And I ended up that year at the Christian Endeavour Camp, CE Camp up in Mount Barker. Did anyone ever go to those things? Yeah, they go back a while. So I was at CE Camp in 1990. And back then they used to have a special service on New Year's Eve every single year. Uh, And it was a beautifully curated kind of night for kids. Uh, It was a service that culminated at midnight on New Year's Eve. And so everyone was thoroughly exhausted. But all the kids on the camp obviously had the euphoria of being together for camp for a number of days and all the rest. And so there we were. And the speaker and the songs for that service had a particular evangelistic focus. They would go straight for the heart. And I remember uh, that night um, being there, Um, with my sister, actually. We weren't sitting together because you don't sit with your sister, but my sister was there. And I remember that, you know, I I kind of knew that at the end of the night there would be some kind of call for response, some kind of altar call, an opportunity for people to go forward. And it just so happened that my older sister, who's 16 months on from me, was starting to make some choices that weren't particularly great ones. I won't go into all the details, but she wasn't travelling really well at that particular time. But she was there at camp. And so my great hope and my kind of expectation was that perhaps this kind of message might be a meaningful one for her. And look, I don't really remember what songs we sang or what the preacher talked about. All I remember sitting, sitting there thinking was that that's exactly what my sister needed to hear and that there was this kind of, like I said, this expectation that perhaps she might be the one that went down the front at the end of the night. But this really strange thing happened as the night went on. As the band played the final song, a song that was called All to Jesus I Surrender. It's an old hymn that many of you probably know. All to Jesus I Surrender. As the band played that final song, it was me that felt like I needed to get out of my seat and go down the front. It was a really strange experience. was The whole time I was thinking it was definitely my sister that needed to go, and yet I felt kind of compelled to get out of my seat and wander down the front because I knew this was a moment where I had this kind of childlike faith that was beautifully and very generously cultivated by my parents over many years. But I knew that this was the moment that I had to surrender my life, every single part of it to God. It wasn't someone else's faith anymore. It was mine. This was my life, and I needed to surrender it to God. And so the words of the song go something like this, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed saviour, I surrender all. And what the words of that song, in my experience, kind of taught me is that the way of surrender, this act of surrendering our lives to God, is a central part of our Christian journey. And we've just kind of talked about that in the last few minutes, haven't we? This idea of baptism, and it's been sensational to see some baptisms in our church over the last few weeks. Baptism is this incredibly tangible symbol of surrender, of dying to ourselves, of handing over our lives, our whole lives to God. But sometimes, and this is not to say, you know, nothing negative about baptism, but we can kind of sometimes think about it as a once-off experience. It's when we give our lives to Jesus. It's when we go through the waters of baptism. It's when we go down the front that we surrender our lives. But in reality, it's a daily experience, isn't it? It's a daily practice where we are asked, we're invited to surrender our whole lives, every single part of it, to God. And of course, this series, we've been trying to explore what it looks like for us to walk the way of Jesus, to journey with Jesus as he journeys towards the cross. What does it look like for us to become apprentices of Jesus, to watch him, to walk with him, to to learn from the way that he lives, to think about what that means for the way that we can go about our lives as well. So this morning, as we go back into the book of Luke, I want us to look at what does it mean for us to apprentice Jesus in the way that he walks the way of surrender. And we're going to do that starting in Luke chapter 22. So if you've got your Bible there. I think it's It's in the app, is it, as well, Nate? Nate did this generously on my behalf this morning. Uh, It's in the app as well, but um, if you've got your Bible there or your phone there, just get up Luke chapter 22. We're going to start right at the end of Luke chapter 22 in verse 66. It's a really long passage, this one, so just kind of take a deep breath, sit back, relax. We'll read this together. Uh, And don't panic as we go through. I'm not going to go through this verse by verse, otherwise we'll be here until 2024. But we're going to look at this passage as a whole, but what I want you to take particular notice of this morning is the way that Jesus responds when he's questioned, when he's questioned by the high priest, when he's questioned by Pilate, when he's questioned by Herod. Have a look at the way that Jesus responds, pay particular attention. Are we ready to go? I'm going to put my glasses on. All right, Luke chapter 22, we're going to start at verse 66 and roll straight into chapter 23. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate and they began to accuse him saying, we've found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see, he'd been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends, because before this had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I'll have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Now, I'm not sure what stands out to you as we read that passage together, but certainly as I read that again this week, As I look at Jesus and the way that he responds to the high priest and to Pilate and to Herod, it almost seems like Jesus is deliberately evasive and ambiguous in his answers, isn't he? And then when he gets to Herod, he's tending towards teenage boy territory. If you've ever been in a car on the way home from school with a teenage boy and you're asking them a series of questions, they give no answers. Uh, It's a bit like that when, when he's finally before Herod. Herod plies him with many questions and yet he gives no answers. it almost seems like Jesus is determined not to give them what they want. And it raises the question about why. Why would Jesus respond in that way? Wouldn't this be the perfect time to defend himself? If you're the Messiah, just tell us. Are you the Son of God? Are you the King of the Jews? These seem to be pretty crucial questions, don't they? This could have been an opportunity for Jesus once and for all to explain himself, to put things beyond a shadow of a doubt. And when you think about it, for most of us, our natural response, when we experience something of injustice, when we're accused of something that we simply didn't do, our natural response is to want to protect ourselves, isn't it? We want to defend ourselves. We want to explain it because we know it's injustice. But Jesus doesn't. He refuses to give them what they're looking for. As the encounter goes on, we find that Pilate himself seems to be on the side of Jesus. Yet Jesus doesn't fire up and leverage Pilate's authority to secure his freedom. And then Herod himself, he's looking for some kind of show. He's been waiting to come in contact with Jesus so that he can see some kind of sign. Surely it wouldn't have been that much of a stretch for Jesus to just do one more miracle that might have satisfied Herod's curiosity. But of course he doesn't. And we know with the benefit of uh, understanding how the story ends and what happens at the cross, that this was not an opportunity for Jesus to fight for his freedom, but it was an opportunity to surrender himself to God's purposes. In many respects, I look at this encounter with the high priest and with Pilate and with Herod as the very enactment of Jesus' prayer in the garden that we looked at a few weeks ago. Yet not as I will, but your will be done. This is Jesus living that out. In the moment that he could defend himself, that he could protect himself, that he could explain it all away, he commits himself. He surrenders himself over to God's purposes, as devastating as that might be. Jesus models for us in these encounters and in many other places, what it means to surrender ourselves to the purposes of God. And, of course, we're going to stop on Friday and we're going to recognise the ultimate act of surrender, aren't we? Surrendering his very life for the sake of others, for the sake of the kingdom. But for now, just for a few minutes this morning, I just want us to reflect on what does it look like for us as we think about what it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to apprentice Jesus, what does it look like for us to also walk the way of surrender? And so just a few little reflections more than anything this morning about what that looks like. And the first one is this, that surrender is not capitulation. In the the economy of God's kingdom, surrender is actually a position of strength. It's not giving up. It actually puts us in a position of strength. Because when we think about surrender, perhaps the most famous symbol of surrender is that of, you know, waving the white flag, isn't it? That's, That's something that comes to mind. You know, in military terms, when an army has been overcome and it's time to capitulate and it's time to surrender and to give in, they'll wave the white flag, they'll lay down their guns and they'll hand themselves over. And when we think about waving the white flag, we often think about that this is a position of weakness, isn't it? This is potentially even a position of cowardice. But we know in this encounter that Jesus isn't waving the white flag, is he? Jesus' battle against sin and death is far from over, and we're going to discover that again come Friday. But rather, he surrenders himself to God's purposes, and in doing so, What he does is he embraces the upside-down economy of God's kingdom. And I want to explain that more in a second. But he embraces the upside-down economy of God's kingdom. He wasn't putting his trust in the responses of the high priest or Pilate or Herod. He wasn't putting his trust in clever legal arguments to get himself out of a bind. He was handing himself over surrendering himself, surrendering control of the situation to God. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So if we think about this in the context of apprenticeship, what does it mean for us to surrender control to God? I think the first thing we need to come to grips with, the first thing that we need to admit, first thing that I need to admit, is it's an awfully hard thing to do. Because we crave control as human beings. Whether we like it or not, we crave it. Our default position, I know certainly that my default position often is to rely on my own competence and my own sheer will to get through life, to get through whatever I need to get to. Because I want to control it. I don't want to hand it off to anyone else. I don't want to admit any sense of vulnerability that I can't do life on my own. Because that's my default position. I crave that sense of control. And I think as humans, we all do at times. And so it seems counterintuitive at times to hand over that control to someone else. And yet, in the upside down economy of God's kingdom, when we surrender, when we acknowledge that we can't control everything, we can't and we were never designed to do life on our own, it's not cowardice. It's not capitulation. It's actually a position of strength. I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases the very first of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. He goes, he says this, you're blessed. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. With less of you, there's more of God and his rule. Talk about counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope. But what that does, it allows room for God in our lives, less of us and more of him. When we surrender to God, it creates, it cultivates that space for God to work in and through us in ways that are seemingly impossible when we are determined to be so self-reliant and do things on our own. And, of course, we find that same reality in the life of Paul, it's enacted in the life of Paul. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when Paul is talking about this mysterious kind of thorn in the flesh that he's experiencing. And as an as apostle trying to pursue God's mission in lots of places around the world, Paul is held back by this thing, this thorn in the flesh, and he pleads with God for him to take it away. And the message that he gets back is, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Which leads Paul to go on and say, When I am weak, then I am strong. It's upside down. But that's the economy of God's kingdom. It's an upside down kingdom. That when we can be vulnerable, when we can surrender, when we can hand over our lives to God, it actually allows God to demonstrate, to work through us, to display his strength and power. In our lives. And it will happen. It does happen to all of us. All of us get to that point at some stage in our lives. We might be at that point in our lives this morning as we come into church. We are at the end of ourselves. We're at the end of our rope. We don't know how we're going to take the next step. It might happen this week sometime. It might happen this year. The only thing we know is it will happen at some point. And it's in those moments that we're encouraged, we're invited to surrender our lives to the God of the universe. Jesus invites us to walk the way of surrender with him. Again, I love the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases Matthew chapter 11, the invitation that Jesus gives us to walk with him as we surrender our lives to God. He says, are you tired? Yes. Anyone tired? I am. Yes. Uh, worn out? Yes. Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Become my apprentice. Learn the unformed, un, not unformed, unforced rhythms of grace. We're invited to surrender our lives. As we come to the end of ourselves, let's give our lives over to God. Not in capitulation or cowardice, but it puts us in a position of strength. So that's my first little reflection. The second one is this, and a little bit shorter. The second one is this. that Surrendering is not giving up our own will, but being willing to hand it over to God. C.S. Lewis, uh, a much more astute theologian than me, explains this, explains it in this way. He says this, that submitting to God's will is not renouncing or abandoning our own wills that are given to us by God himself, but submitting them to God in a readiness to do his will. Does that make sense? I had to read that a few times during the week. It's not renouncing our own will because God's given us will and desire and love and hope. and God's given us that stuff. It's not about giving that up, but it's about aligning our will with that of God so that we can go about doing his work in the world. And I think what he's getting at there is that in surrendering to God, we don't actually stop being us. We don't give up who we are. We don't give up necessarily our personality. We have those desires and hopes and dreams. We're still ourselves. But it's an act of alignment, aligning our lives, aligning our will and desire with God's vision of flourishing life. Now, as so I thinking about this during the week, I, and I'm really hoping I don't offend anyone here, but I've been to many weddings over the years where there's some kind of like candle ceremony. Have you been to these weddings? So, no, okay, let me explain. So the candle ceremony goes something like this. The bride and the groom both light a candle uh, and then as an act of essentially becoming one flesh, they will light a central candle to represent this new marriage and in the process they'll kind of blow out their own candles and they're left with one candle, lovely, one flesh, here we are, newly married couple. If that was you at your wedding, it's a beautiful ceremony, it's lovely, well done. (laughs) The only issue I have with little ceremonies like that is the last act where they kind of blow themselves out in order to, you know, become this newly married couple. The reality is that when we come into marriage, we don't actually stop being ourselves, do we? We still have the same background and personality and wants and needs and desires, like we're still us. But hopefully, In the act of marriage, in being married, in living as married people, we are constantly trying to work at how we align our wills together so that we can live as one flesh. Does that make sense? So we are ourselves, but we're constantly aligning ourselves with another, and so it is with God. And surrendering our will and our desire to God is, I suppose, it's admitting that sometimes... Our desires, the things that we give our attention to, the things that we give our lives to can be somewhat distorted. Our desires can turn inward rather than looking to God and to others in his creation. God created us with a will. He designed us to love. He designed us to have desires. He's given us imagination and the ability to have hopes and dreams for ourselves and the world. The challenges, whatever they are for us, What does it mean for us to give them over to God? To align who we are and who he has made us and who he has designed us to be. How do we align that with God's will and his vision of flourishing life? Again, this is a daily practice. Whatever God gives us is an opportunity to surrender to him so that we can serve his purposes, so that he can take what we have and use it for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom in the world. A daily act of surrender. And I just wrote myself a little question here, uh, which is like a whole different sermon. So I'm not going to answer it now. The question is, how do we know? How do we know what God's will is so that we can align our will with his? It's a good question, isn't it? The best answer, <laughs> the shortest answer that I will give now is to go back to my image of marriage. How do I know, how do I align my will with my wife, Jane? The more time that we spend together gives me a better idea. The more time that we immerse ourselves in the story of God in Scripture, the more time we work on our relationship with Jesus, the better, the closer we will come to understanding what his vision of life for us and for our world is and how we can play our part in it. It's a short answer to a very complex question. But the third thing, the final thing I just want to say this morning, the final reflection of what it means for us to apprentice Jesus and surrender is that surrender isn't just handing over our worst, but it's actually giving God our very best. I still remember when I was a little kid, I was a good kid, always wanting to do the right thing. Like I grew up in a Christian family. I was a pastor's kid. I went to church every week, Sunday school. Like I just, I knew all the rules. And so when I went to bed every single night, I would just, I would have these very simple childhood prayers where I would kind of rehearse all of the wrong things that I might have done during the day. And I didn't want to leave anything out because, you know, I knew that I had to ask God to forgive me of my sins. And that's just the way that I grew up with a lot of guilt probably, but that's the way I grew up. (laughs) And that's no knock on my parents. I think that's just the, the kind of gospel that perhaps I took on when I was a kid, that it was just about following the rules. And the idea was that I had to be forgiven for the wrong things that I had done. And I think most of us that grow up in that kind of environment, most of us that grow up in the church inherently know, because it's been drummed into us since we were born, that the act of repentance of surrendering those parts of our life where we might have missed the mark, surrendering those parts of life that we know are sinful, is a central practice of the Christian faith, isn't it? Repentance is important. We need to do that stuff. But I also want to suggest to us that it's not just about giving God the worst parts of our life so that we can experience forgiveness. But actually surrendering to God is about giving him the best parts of our life so that we can partner with him in his restorative mission in the world. And again, as I reflected on that during the week, um, I was thinking about Chariots of Fire. In fact, someone else I was listening to at the start of the week used Chariots of Fire and Eric Liddell, the main character, as as a little illustration. I thought I'd pick up on that. It's It's a 1981 film. Again, this is going back... A long time, but very famous movie, Uh, you know, famous music as athletes are jogging along the beach and all that kind of stuff. Um, Amazing story of Eric Liddell, who was a Christian and also an athlete. And there's a scene in that movie which has become very famous now, particularly in Christian circles, where Eric is being challenged by his sister about his commitment to God versus his commitment to his athletic endeavors. And Eric Liddell's response in that moment is this. I believe that God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. He made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I used to really resonate with that quote. Um, About 10 knee surgeries later, I no longer feel God's pleasure when I run. (laughs) But as someone that's played a lot of sport, I still resonate with parts of that because that's kind of who God made me to be as well and the question is always how do I take that part of my life that God gave me to do and actually use it for his purposes rather than use it for my own sense of self and recognition and the challenge for us is still the same God designed Eric Liddell to run he made him fast how has God designed you what's he put in your hand He might not have made you fast, but he's made you something else. He's given you gifts and abilities and experiences and intellect and personalities that can be used by him. What are you good at? What comes naturally to you? What what has he given to you? And the challenge for us is are we prepared to surrender those parts of our life? To not just like I did, sit down each night and rehearse all the worst parts of our life so that we can be forgiven, but actually be prepared to recognise that God has given us unique gifts and abilities that he wants to use for his kingdom. Are we prepared to hand those things over, to surrender those parts of our life so that he can bring life to the world, so that he can bless the world, so that he can continue to expand his kingdom to every part of our world in and through us, because that's what he's made us to do. Will we surrender those parts of our life to God? Let's just pray together. God, we thank you for who Jesus is, We thank you that although he was God, he didn't use that as something to be exploited. But he was prepared to become just like us. Prepared to even go to the cross on our behalf to bring us life. We thank you for his incredible example. We thank you for the example in the passage we read this morning of the way that he interacted with those that were in power at the time. We thank you that he shows us what it means to surrender, to being prepared to lay aside his own wants and desires perhaps in order to serve your purposes. Help us to understand what that means for us as those who want to apprentice him, who want to walk alongside him, who want to learn from his life. Help us to understand what that means for us. As we think about what it means to to hand over control when we, when we want to crave and we want to keep it for ourselves. Help us to hand over the very best parts of our life, not just the worst parts, but the very best parts of our life so that they can be used by you. May you work in and through us. May you empower us through your spirit to partner with you in your restorative work. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.